immigration, amnesty, and the law, which some of you might think is an oxymoronic trilogy. <laughs> but we'll learn more about it after today. Before we go to the speakers who I'll introduce in a moment, uh, I get to do my commercial, and that is that bring up a subject which I think is a very uh, real subject for the Courts of Appeal, especially the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, which is the state of immigration appeals and the clogging of our dockets. Um, <clears throat> this may not affect many of you as immigration lawyers, I doubt that you are, but it does affect how long the cases that you have on appeal take to get resolved. The Second Circuit, 20% of its um, docket is immigration cases. In the Ninth Circuit, I think we're up to 46% of our cases. Um, this causes our uh, delay from filing to the determination to go to about 22 months, and in the Second Circuit, it's well over a year. Um, there are some possible solutions to this, at least small step solutions. One would be the uh, better servicing and, and better staffing of our immigration judges. We have a lot of immigration positions which are still open. Uh, 35 judges can still be appointed. The judges, immigration judges who sit without a jury, uh, are determining four to six cases a day. Um, and they are not, they cannot possibly give uh, quality performances all the time. The Board of Immigration Appeals now is streamlining its uh, decisions so that we don't get really thought out immigration appeals uh, opinions, which make it much more difficult to um, narrow the issues and also to determine the all-important issue of um, issuing stay orders, which allow the appellants to stay around for another couple of years. Um, if there's anything you can do to bring pressure upon your elected representatives and administration to appoint the full budgeted group of lawyers, of judges and uh, Board of Immigration judges, that would be a great help. Also, there is a great inequality in the spread of immigration appeals. The 8th and 10th Circuit handle approximately 100 immigration appeals a year. Last year in the 9th Circuit, we had 5,166 appeals. Um, this leads one to believe that there could be a better distribution of labor in the capitalistic society. Uh, one of the proposals that's been made by Senator Specter is to put all the immigration appeals in the federal circuit, a decision, uh, a proposal which met with thundering silence from the federal circuit. <laughs> uh, my uh, proposal is a little bit different. I put it to Senator Specter, and I recently gave a speech about it to the immigration judges and the Board of Immigration Appeal, and that is to have a body similar to the multi-district litigation panel uh, called, let's call it the multi-circuit appellate litigation panel, in which uh, cases would be screened by a central staff. The cases would be bunched, for instance, asylum cases for Sikhs um, who were uh, trying to avoid Indian persecution, for Mexicans who were trying to avoid um, removal, cancellation of removal cases and have them bunched and sent to a circuit so that the circuit could uh, decide the cases and 
if it's transferee circuit under the panel, would uh, be a rule of precedent for the nation. Um, I don't have any particular pride of authorship in this uh, proposal. There are other proposals that have been floated on Capitol Hill, but any proposal that will equalize the work of these immigration appeals would be greatly appreciated by the Second and Ninth Circuit. Uh, last, I would say that uh, most of you attorneys who are starting out with big firms and are in the so-called litigation section of the big firm will be looking at five, six, seven years before you actually try a case. We want to encourage you to um, come forward as pro bono counsel in immigration cases. You get to try the case right away. <laughs> and not only that, but we in the Ninth Circuit guarantee you oral argument before the Ninth Circuit. We will not submit your case um, on the briefs. Now, the importance of this, I think, is, is very uh, graphic. We know that in asylum cases, that is people who concede their removability but seek asylum on grounds of persecution because of race or religion or political persuasion, um, if the, if, if the uh, alien has an attorney, he has about 36% of those asylum cases are granted. If there is no attorney, only about 7% are granted. And I am probably exhibit one as to why you should have an attorney in immigration proceedings. I stand before you as probably the only federal judge who was ordered deported in 19... I was. I was ordered deported at a hearing. Um, and uh, But don't worry about it. The feds aren't about to take me away. Um, I, I beat the case on appeal before, <laughs> before the Board of Immigration Appeal. So with that, let me introduce uh, the, uh, the panel members who will speak in this order. Uh, first, we have Professor Gerald Newman, who is a uh, Sinclair Armstrong Professor of International Foreign and Comparative Law at Harvard Law School. He received his Bachelor of Arts degree in Mathematics from Harvard College in 1973. Professor Newman went on to receive a PhD in Mathematics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1977 and a JD from Harvard Law School in 1980. He has taught immigration and nationality law since 1985 and has written numerous articles on the subject. His research interests include habeas corpus and the rule of law, rights of foreign nationals, and transnational dimensions of constitutionalism. Professor Newman is the author of Strangers to the Constitution, Immigrants, Borders, and Fundamental Law, published by Princeton in 1996. Next on my right, Professor Chris Kovac, is a professor of law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City Law School. He received his Bachelor of Arts degree with highest distinction from Harvard University in 1988. In 1992, Professor Kovac received his doctorate in political science from Oxford University and in 1995 his JD from Yale Law School. Following his graduation from law school, he served as law clerk to Judge Daniel Taha of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. In 2001, Professor Kovac worked as a White House fellow in the office of U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft. After his fellowship, he served as counsel to the Attorney General 
and as Chief Advisor on Immigration Law and Border Security. Following the 9-11 attacks, Professor Kobach was in charge of the Department of Justice efforts to tighten border security and reform the immigration court system. Professor Kobach has testified before Congress on eight occasions. He is a regular on The O'Reilly Factor on Fox News Channel, Lou Dobbs Tonight on CNN, and MSNBC News, most often discussing U.S. immigration policy. He is also a frequent columnist for the New York Post and Washington Times. Notice it's the New York Post and Washington Times, not the New York Times and Washington Post. <laughs> In addition, he has litigated a number of high-profile immigration-related cases. Next is uh, Dean Alexander Olenikoff. Dr. Dean Olenikoff is the Dean of the Georgetown University Law Center and Executive Vice President of Georgetown University. He's a graduate of Swarthmore College and Yale Law School. In 1981, from 1981 to 1984, he was a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Dean Olenikoff served as general counsel and executive associate commissioner for programs at the Immigration and Nationalization Service for several years during the Clinton administration. From 1997 to 2004, he was a senior associate at the Migration Policy Institute, where he now serves as a board of trustees. Dean Alenikoff has been a member of the Georgetown faculty since 1997. He has written widely on immigration, refugee, and citizenship law and policy, and is a co-author of a leading casebook on immigration and citizenship law. Last but not least, Professor John Baker, who is the Dale Bennett Professor of Law at the Louisiana State University. He received his Bachelor of Arts degree, magna cum laude, from the University of Dallas, in 1969 and as a J.D. with honors from the University of Michigan Law School in 1972. He also earned a Ph.D. at the University of London in 2003. Following law school, Professor Baker served as a clerk in the Federal District Court and as Assistant District Attorney in New Orleans before joining the LSU faculty in 1975. While a professor, he has been a consultant to the Justice Department, the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee on Separation of Powers, and the Office of Planning in the White House. Professor Baker regularly argues in federal court and has argued twice before the United States Supreme Court. He has taught a number of short courses on separation of powers with Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. First, we'll hear from Professor Newman. Thank you, Judge Bea. Uh, my task is to start the panel with some historical observations before turning to the contemporary situation. Uh, as a scholar, I prefer to provide greater complexity, uh, but in seven minutes, I can only sketch some highlights. Uh, first, a general observation about the history of U.S. immigration policy. Our borders have never been legally open and should not be. The federal government took over the regulation of immigration from the states after the Civil War. Initially, federal law only identified categories of aliens that Congress considered undesirable as immigrants to the United States and did not try to limit the number of desirable immigrants. The great watershed in immigration policy occurred in the 1920s when Congress placed annual limitations on the number of otherwise desirable immigrants. Restricting the volume of immigration required the government to define priorities among immigrants. 
Uh, and from 1924 until 1965, the leading principle of U.S. immigration selection was the ethnic national origins quota. Uh, that system was finally abolished in 1965 and replaced by a tripartite policy that gave preferences to family members of citizens and resident aliens, to employees with needed skills, and to refugees. In modified form, that policy still operates today. Uh, second, since the 1920s, the United States has repeatedly found it appropriate to regularize the status of otherwise desirable immigrants who had entered or remained in violation of the legislation. Uh, you can call that a legalization or an amnesty. In rational discourse, nothing turns on the label. Uh, for example, amnesties for long-term residents were enacted in 1929, in 1940, in 1958, in 1965, and in 1986. The 1986 amnesty gave lawful resident status to over 2.5 million people. Today, it is estimated that there are more than 12 million unlawful residents. Uh, I don't mind using the phrase illegal alien to describe them, but we should understand that it is not a well-defined legal term and that it describes a wide variety of people and situations. Uh, some simply entered without permission. Some were temporarily admitted but overstayed. Some are entitled to legal status but are waiting for the government to act. Some have applied for asylum as the law permits and are awaiting a decision. Some came in voluntarily for example, having been brought as children by their parents. One unforeseen consequence of stricter border enforcement since the 1980s has been that people who would otherwise have been seasonal migrant workers traveling alone have been pressured to settle down as permanent illegal immigrants with families. Uh, by the government's own estimates in January 2006, roughly one million illegal aliens had lived here for over 21 years another one and a quarter million for over 16 years, almost two million for over 11 years, three and a quarter million more for over six years, and roughly four million for less than six years. The government report doesn't break these figures down by ages, uh, but private demographers estimated in 2004 that there were 1.6 million unlawful resident children and almost two million families with at least one unauthorized parent and at least one citizen child. Having 12 million residents without legal status raises serious and complex rule of law issues from a number of perspectives. One is the illegal conduct that brought them here, though in some cases it occurred many years ago. Many children came here by no fault of their own and have grown up in our society and face a serious dilemma because they were lawfully educated here but cannot lawfully be employed. Another rule of law issue is the vulnerability of the unauthorized population to crime or to other violations of their rights. Their status can inhibit them from seeking protection or redress. The continuing presence of these children and adults raises a number of questions. Uh, for example, how many years of productive, tax-paying, and otherwise law-abiding life here make up for an illegal start and the acquisition of false documents? How can we efficiently and accurately administer a system 
that doesn't leave us guessing about our actual population and that enables us to identify significant threats to safety, health, and national security. Our political process needs to address these questions and not to avoid them with simplistic slogans and myths. If we are concerned about illegality, we should also be concerned about the illegal conduct of employers as well as employees. Many employers knowingly employ unauthorized aliens. That is a legal term. But the political power of employers has been exercised to push the burden of illegality onto employees and to make employer sanctions difficult to enforce against employers. If we are concerned with illegal conduct, we should also focus on other forms of employer illegality, such as occupational safety violations and the breaking of unions. Rule of law problems in immigration enforcement should also attract our attention. Uh, for example, the failure of DHS to adjudicate meritorious applications and the Attorney General's crippling of the appellate function of the Board of Immigration Appeals in 2002, which produced some of the problems Judge Bea discussed. Uh, we should also focus on the illegal conduct of municipal officials. Uh, for example, the adoption of unlawful local employer sanctions ordinances, which clearly violate an express prohibition in the 1986 Immigration Act. Uh, that prohibition was the product of employers' political power, and I wouldn't try to defend it on a priori moral grounds, but it is the law of the land, and its violation raises rule of law issues like any other positive law. Compliance with law by government officials is, after all, the primary meaning of the rule of law. Thank you. Professor Thank you, Judge Vera, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I've decided to uh, focus my comments on the fiscal impact of uh, illegal immigration today, here and now, and talk a little bit about how that works its way into the courts uh, in terms of cases that arise as a result of that fiscal impact, and then spend a little bit of time discussing why amnesty is uh, not the answer. Um, Milton Friedman once famously observed that you cannot combine a large welfare state with excessive immigration, and I would add you can't combine it with, uh, he said, with free and open immigration. You can't combine it with uh, a breakdown in the enforcement of immigration law either. Um, the cost of illegal immigration is a, a hard figure to uh, get a handle on, but a number of economists have done so recently, most recently Robert Rector of the Heritage Foundation, and he puts the number at $89 billion a year at all levels of government. That's federal, state, and local combined net after you deduct any taxes that are derived from illegal aliens. Uh, in 2005, Bear Stearns said the number was somewhere north of $65 billion a year. Uh, those costs reflect all kinds of government services, from K-12 through education, which is one of the largest ticket items, to uh, criminal costs, to uh, general government services, to health care costs, to you name it. And not surprisingly, most of those fiscal burdens fall at the state and local level of government. And so as those burdens have mounted uh, as a result of this massive wave of uh, illegal immigration in the last two decades, uh, you've seen state and local governments uh, take action. Some 33 states in 2007 passed state statutes concerning immigration, illegal immigration. Uh, and in this year, 2007, it looks like the number is going to be somewhere upwards of 40 states passing statutes, most of the statutes designed to discourage illegal immigration. Um, I'm involved in defending some of those statutes, and Arizona is a case in point. 
Uh, Arizona has just enacted a law requiring all employers to use the E-Verify system, formerly known as the Basic Pilot Program, which is a very simple Internet system you can use to actually get an answer from the federal government in about two seconds as to whether someone seeking employment is actually authorized to work in the United States. That system is voluntary now. About 20,000 companies use it. Arizona is making it mandatory within its, uh, within its state boundaries. Uh, not surprisingly, it drew a lawsuit. Uh, and I'm assisting the state in defending that suit, which may eventually end up uh, in the Ninth Circuit. I expect it probably will. Um, and so the, uh, <laughs> I won't say much more about that other than that these cases do uh, define the, the question in all these cases is what are the limits of preemption and uh, are the states acting uh, within their permissible scope? And I think Arizona certainly is. Uh, in 1986, Congress carved out a window and it said that states may impose uh, licensing sanctions upon those businesses that employ unauthorized aliens, and that's exactly what Arizona does. Another case I want to mention, because uh, at trial, the facts came out that illustrate this point about the fiscal burden, is Hazleton, Pennsylvania, uh, which I'm now representing in the Third Circuit. Uh, Hazleton, uh, which many of you may have heard about, uh, is a town that passed a, a, an ordinance that would restrict uh, landlords renting to illegal aliens knowingly and employers knowingly hiring unauthorized aliens. Uh, their situation was this. The population went from about 20 22,000 in the last census to about 30,000 today. Uh, the bulk of that immigration, the bulk of that inward immigration to the city uh, was, it is believed, illegal immigration, and we had some uh, statisticians try to put a number on that. But interestingly, although the population increased by 50%, the earned income taxes for the city, which a city of that class must rely on in Pennsylvania, were static. They did not go up. Why not? Well, the bulk of that uh, incoming population was working off the books or earning so little income uh, that they weren't paying any taxes on it. English as a second language expenses in the local school district went from $500 a year in the year 2000 to over $1.1 million a year in the year 2006. A crime wave in narcotics and violence due to gangs that tend to be dominated by illegal aliens uh, ensued. The local hospital's emergency rooms were... Uh, was, was, was flooded. Uh, wait times were usually in excess of five hours or, or typically in excess of five hours and uh, an expanded emergency room facility had to be built. So you see these burdens and you see states and localities uh, trying, to, uh, trying to do something about the problem. Now one answer that some provide at the federal level is to say, well, we just need to uh, solve the problem by legalizing everybody that's illegal and then we don't have any more illegal aliens. And this is, of course, uh, the amnesty answer. But I would suggest that amnesty uh, only makes the problem worse. First of all, it makes the fiscal impact even greater. I heard its foundation recently tried to put a number on this as well. Looking at the Senate amnesty proposal that was debated in May and June of 2007, uh, they calculated that the cost would be $2.6 trillion in additional costs at the federal, state, and local level. And the biggest ticket item there would be putting all of these people uh, on the Social Security rolls and making them eligible for Social Security. Uh, the other problem with... Uh, illegal immigration being solved, if you will, through amnesty, is that it also results in massive amounts of fraud. We know this from experience. The 1986 amnesty, which has already been mentioned, approximately 2.7 million seasonal agricultural workers, or so-called seasonal agricultural workers, were supposed to get the amnesty, or did, did get it. Uh, the INS discovered 398,000 cases of fraudulent applications that they actually found. But there were many more cases of fraud that they did not discover. Uh, among them was um, Mahmoud the Red Abu Halima, who, who was one of the leaders of the 1993 attacks on the World Trade Center. He got an amnesty as an agricultural worker, even though he'd been driving a cab in New York and presumably you know, beginning the plotting of his terrorist acts. His brother, Mohammed, also got amnesty. 
under the 1986 amnesty. And part of the reason that these amnesties, especially these massive ones, are such a recipe for fraud is that you're talking about such an incredibly huge number of people that is imposed on a very small bureaucracy. We only have about 3,000 status adjudicators at USCIS, Citizenship and Immigration Services. Now, they hire some contractors when something like this happens to expand, to broaden the workload among more people. But the bottom line is we simply don't have the administrative capacity to handle it. Right now, there's an unofficial six-minute rule at place. This is without any amnesty. And we get about 6.3 applications. In fiscal year 06, there were 6.3 million applications for benefits. And that's such a huge workload on top of the backlog of millions of cases that already exist that they have to go at 10 cases an hour. And literally, the supervisors are cracking the whip, you know, making sure and offering pay benefits to those adjudicators who can adjudicate cases more quickly. So they don't call foreign governments to find out about criminal record. They don't call the state DMV to find out if two people who claim to be married really are living together. And the system simply cannot process that many cases. It would be a recipe for breakdown to have all 12 to 20 million or a large portion of those 12 to 20 million eligible for an amnesty. And the GAO recently reported on this and said that fraud is a huge problem under the status quo at USCIS. So basically, the six-minute rule would become a two-minute rule if you had 12 million cases spread among 3,000 people. That averages out 250 calendar days a year. It's about 16 applications a day per person. And we simply don't have the bureaucracy to screen them all. So finally, let me summarize by saying that although immigration is very costly, and that's pushing the states and localities to act, and I think certainly in the case of Hazleton in Arizona, they are acting properly, a massive amnesty is not the answer. Indeed, when the states do act, that's not a bad thing, because if the states can offer the federal government help, then that's much better than the states doing the opposite, like New York Governor Elliott Spitzer suggested, where the states hinder and offer driver's licenses and de facto amnesty and make life easier for illegal aliens who want to reside and have all of the privileges of legalization without actually having the stamp of legalization. So the fiscal burden must be recognized, and we need to realize that that's what's pushing some of these cases into the courts. This is a divisive issue, but it's interesting that it's not one that necessarily falls along partisan lines. Recall last summer that President Bush made common cause of the Democratic majority in the House and the Senate, and they were unable together to pass comprehensive immigration reform legislation. Why is that? Well, I think Rudy Giuliani may have had it right, and that's not something I normally say, but maybe it's just attendance at Federalist conferences that make me move in that direction, or maybe it's, maybe it's because he'll be speaking from this podium in about an hour's time. But uh, this is what he said after the failure of the legislation. He said the problem with the bill is that there was no overarching theme. There was no compelling narrative to the legislation. And I agree with that. The bill that was proposed in the House and the Senate was simply one that seemed to be cobbled, uh, cobbled together a bunch of compromise provisions, conflicting parts. So you put tougher border enforcement together with regularization or amnesty, as some call it, and a guest worker program. It didn't hold together. Now, that combination of elements that, oddly enough, worked in 1986, the last time we had major immigration reform. That was the point at which we imposed sanctions on employers uh, who hired undocumented immigrants. It was the massive legalization program that the previous speakers 
have talked about. But in 1986, we had a, con a consistent story that put those elements together. Here was the claim. We were going to end illegal immigration uh, forever. And the idea was that we'd legalize those longstayers who were here. And for new arrivals, they wouldn't be able to get work because employers would turn them away at the workplace because they wouldn't have adequate documents. Now, we know that failed dismally. The 1986 bill, the 1986 law failed because of the ready uh, accessibility of fraudulent documents, which meant that employer sanctions, employer sanction provisions in our bill, uh, widely uh, followed uh, in, uh, by all employers and yet has zero deterrence because of the availability of bad documents. But whatever the story was, it worked in 1986. That story doesn't sell in 2007. There's no reasonable claim that the package of measures that were talked about in the House and the Senate and by the president uh, will, will materially, uh, will do anything significant to end uh, undocumented migration. There's no clear way to fix employer sanctions anytime soon. There's been talk about a smart card, a swipe card that could be de developed over time, but that'll be years in the making while government databases work out uh, name issues. There's no reason to believe the border will be effectively sealed. Uh, and amnesty now is defended not as ending undocumented migration, but seen in the, 96, in the, in the aftermath of the 1986 bill as simply leading to more uh, undocumented migration. And even among the, the different camps, the left and the right, there was not a, uh, where there was a coherent story, it wasn't a particularly compelling one, nor was it particularly attractive for, for many in the debate. So from the left, the story was one of human rights. Uh, undocumented workers had earned their status in the United States, and this wasn't an amnesty. People didn't buy it. People said these are undocumented immigrants. Yes, they have basic human rights not to be subjected to harsh uh, treatment, but they didn't have a right to a status. They didn't earn that simply by coming here uh, and working for a few years. From the right, the story was one, the narrative was one of undocumented immigrants are criminals. They're lawbreakers. They're queue jumpers. And that wasn't true for most Americans. Most Americans know undocumented workers in one way or another. And that doesn't fit. That doesn't fit the story. In fact, most undocumented immigrants are rather law abiding other than the initial legal entry because they don't want to fall into the hands uh, of, uh, of authorities who may then uh, send them home. Nor was it plausible that we could seal the border or deport those who were here. So if one is not in favor of a, of a large uh, uh, legalization program for the 12 million people here, you've got to have a story about what you're going to do. Not just leave these people in place. You're simply not going to you're not going to move them out of the United States in any significant way. One minute. Oh, my gosh. OK. Uh, let me. Yeah. The story, I think, that has to be told uh, here, I mean, the, the, the narrative that needs to be constructed for a significant movement on the immigration front, I think, would focus on demographics in, in a dynamic way. And here, here's here's the brief story. Um, Immigration will be the, the uh, primary way that we grow our labor force over the next, um, next generation or two. The people in the primary working years, from 18 to 54, native uh, citizens in that category, the size of that group will not grow for the next 20 or 30 years. As many people will be entering it as leaving it. If we're going to grow our workforce and have a dynamic economy, that will have to come uh, from immigration or for people working uh, longer into the future. Secondly, immigration flows have an hourglass kind of uh, a form that fit the needs here. They, the immigrants tend to be either more, more high-skilled than average Americans or work in lower-skilled jobs where there are uh, real needs. This suggests the need for some kind of legal status for the six to seven million undocumented workers already here, a significant integration policy, 
uh, that brings people in, teaches them English, uh, uh, gives, uh, integrates them into the societies in which they're located, uh, and not a significant cut in immigration levels as we try to grow our population, our workforce population, in a sensible way that most of the rest of the Western democracies are struggling uh, with because of a dramatic uh, decline uh, in, in, their, in their workforce. In this story, enforcement is not a price you pay for regularization. You know, in the debate we just had, people said, well, I'll give you legalization if you give me enforcement. Rather, enforcement is what you do uh, because you have a system that needs to have uh, integrity to it. It's a necessary part of a system of rules and laws. Um, let me say just what if I have one more minute here uh, on, on the rule of law. Judges, can I, can I have one more minute? Okay. Uh, this, is, this is a fun story. So there's a new citizenship test that the, uh, the Department of Homeland Security has just announced that will be given to people when they naturalize. There are 100 questions that are listed, and they tried to make it a little harder than the past one, which included things like uh, how many stripes are there on the flag. And one of the questions is, what is the rule of law? And you're supposed to answer that in four or five words. I find that an interesting question. So here were the four suggested correct answers. One, leaders must obey the law. Two, government must obey the law. Three, no one is above the law, reasonable ones. And fourth, everybody must follow the law. I think Jerry Newman may have signed on to this fourth one, but I may have a quibble with him on this if I understood him properly. I, I was talking to people drafting this test, and I said, why do you have everybody must follow the law as your reading of what the rule of law means? And they said, well, because of the immigration debate. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, because all these people who come in illegally, they're not following law, and we don't have a rule of law unless we have people following the immigration law. That seems to me to be fundamentally wrong. You may have a breakdown in the immigration system. That means you don't have a rule of law because you have arbitrary enforcement uh, uh, actions or no enforcement uh, at all. But it seems odd to me that say that because people uh, come to meet the demand of, of employers here that you don't have uh, you don't have a rule of law. I think that's hyperbole and I think it's out of place. It seems to me uh, that what we need in this system is a, a, a law of sensible rules. That is one that starts with regularization of status, reorganizes the categories we have, recognizes the long-term trends uh, in immigration so that the benefits of immigration can be harnessed. Thank you. On this divisive subject of immigration, this uh, panel has been amazingly civilized, don't you think? <laughs> and... Uh, it is a wonderful example of what Justice Thomas referred to when he said that this society is foremost in promoting non-ideological exchange. The problem, however, is that it makes for boring television. <laughs> so how can we connect this non-ideological exchange with what's going on in television? And that's what I'd like to attempt to do. And I begin by referring to my 21-year-old son. He is a faithful fan, some would say a fanatical fan, of Rush Limbaugh and Bill O'Reilly. And therefore, he knows exactly how to solve the immigration mess. We, we fence the border, we round up all the illegals, we send them back to their home country, and they get in line and come back legally if, if they can. And he believes that's a very simple thing to do. Well... We agree on the basic principles. That is, I agree on securing the border because it's not only the border. For me, it's the question of U.S. sovereignty and 
questions about terrorism and our place in the world and judges citing international law. We agree on immigration ought to be legal. That's the kind that we need, and that's related to the rule of law. But the rule of law also includes questions of separation of powers and federalism. So it seems to me that one of the things we have to do is ask ourselves about these means to the end. We agree on an end, but what about the means? And this is often what does not get discussed on television. So briefly, I would like to talk about what I see with the simple, wrong with the simple solution and how we might approach it in a more, I would say, constitutional uh, way. You can fence the border if you want. First of all, it's going to take a long time. And secondly, there's a lot of evidence to the effect that some of the efforts we made in the past have only compounded the problem. There was a brief reference by Professor Newman to the fact that people felt pressured since 1986 to stay more in the country. The reality, if you talk to immigration lawyers, is that in the past, if they were in here illegally, they went back and they got in illegally. The reality today is that we have a fundamental problem that goes back to the 1996 legislation that involves bars to reentry. That is, there's a three-year bar, a 10-year bar, and a permanent bar. So this whole notion that we can solve the problem by getting them to go back to their country, stand in line, and come back legally is simply based on a false premise. It doesn't, it's not possible to do that under the current situation. The Roundup. Contrary to impressions, Homeland Security, especially since the uh, last uh, six months or so, has been increasing enforcement. It's not only Roundup, it is for, for, uh, focusing on businesses in particular. But they realize that they haven't the resources to do it all. And that's why there's an emphasis pro promoted by Professor Kohlbach of getting state law enforcement involved. But you've got to face the problem that the Department of Justice simply isn't taking a number of the cases that are being made. Part of it, it may be that they're bad cases. Part of it is also that U.S. attorneys are not completely ruled by Washington. And indeed, many in Congress don't want U.S. attorneys being told what to do by the White House, or even the Attorney General. So we've got a problem here in terms of enforcement internally. The states, Professor Kolbach has written about the power of the states to enforce immigration laws, or at least under certain provisions. There is, this is a complex problem. I would just point out two things. At one end, the federal government under Prince cannot force states to engage in enforcement of federal laws. That's a separate question from the question of whether states are bound in courts by federal laws. But in terms of co-opting state agencies, executive agencies, Prince pretty much rules it out. On the other hand, there are also limits on what states can do. This goes back to the passenger cases in, in 1849. There are certain things states can do under the police power, but there are limits on what states can do in terms of discouraging immigration. Indeed, New York and Massachusetts attempted back then to keep the Irish out, and they couldn't, because ultimately immigration is a social issue, and it is one committed to the federal government, not to the state government. So in terms of, of the problems, it really does come down to 
Congress and how it deals with this issue. But that doesn't mean that you don't do immigration first, or enforcement first. Indeed, the solution, it seems to me, is enforcement first, but not for the reasons usually given. What do I mean by this? First of all, the president under separation of powers, his primary job is to execute the laws. Until the laws are changed, that's his obligation. But there is another reason why the president ought to do this. There's a lot of speculation about what would or wouldn't happen. But the purpose in part of enforcing the laws is to find out where the problems are. That is to say, you have different opinions around this country as to what and how to deal with immigration. In many communities, it may be that they want to get rid of all workers from outside of the country, and it may be by doing so you employ other people, and that's fine. But I can tell you in Louisiana there wouldn't have been a single roof after Hurricane Katrina replaced if the government had not, had not suspended enforcement in Louisiana. The point is we are in this federal system. Under Federalist 10, there are different views. The place to resolve those views is in the Congress as a matter of policy. And, of course, Congress doesn't want to do it. The role of the president under enforcement is to force the Congress to do its obligation. I'm also concerned about the creeping jurisdiction of Homeland Security. Remember, Republicans gave us, beginning in the 70s, a law and order approach to things that 20 years later people have realized have federalized much of crime in this country. If you look at the creeping jurisdiction of Homeland Security into critical infrastructure that is now including meatpacking plants, you realize that we are doing internally we are stretching internally the war on terrorism to the point that we are militarizing law enforcement. Now, just as, just as I think the left is wrong to judicialize war, it is wrong to centralize and militarize law enforcement. Why? Under our Constitution, we are not a unitary state like France. Not everything can be solved by the federal government unless you want to increase the law enforcement and number of courts at the federal level to equal the number of law enforcement people and courts at the state level and create a monolithic state. That is not the view of liberty given to us by our founders. Thank you very much. In view of the short time that we have, we've decided to simply ask for questions and rather than go back and forth. So if you line up in front of the um, microphones, I'll go to the front and then the back microphone. Front microphone. I wanted to ask Professor Kobach about an aspect of uh, a policy that Rudy Giuliani enforced in New York City. When the Clinton Welfare Reform Initiative was passed, uh, Rudy uh, defied the federal government, which provided that... Uh, localities would have to identify illegal immigrants who approach public hospitals. His justification was that the uh, health 
problems that might ensue with illegal immigrants afraid to go to public hospitals justified not complying with this uh, particular order. So my question is, I don't dispute the premises of your uh, opposition to amnesty in any respect. However, I wonder whether there's room for the practical uh, considerations of the public health risks, or is there an argument you can, uh, you know, oppose to Rudy's argument? Yeah, that that argument actually uh, went all the way to the Second Circuit, and, and Rudy ended up losing. Um, the basically what happened was you're right. The 96 in 1996 there were two laws. There's the Welfare Reform Act, which said that states can't give uh, public benefits to illegal aliens, but included an exception for emergency medical services. Now that exception, some would say, is, has been blown wide open because now quite often many emergency rooms around the country are used as sort of one-stop shops, depending on how officious uh, uh, the hospital is in, in enforcing the emergency care only rule. Um, and uh, Mayor Giuliani uh, said that he would not check uh, alien status and would not report uh, people's status to the federal government, adopt, and he continued a policy that had been adopted before his tenure at mayor, uh, essentially a sanctuary policy, a don't ask, don't tell uh, policy. And when the 1996 Immigration Reform Act came in, that had a clause in it that said that um, no state shall adopt a policy uh, restricting or limiting the communication between its officers and the federal government about a person's immigration status. So suddenly uh, the New York policy was at odds with the federal government's new law, and he sued, making a Tenth Amendment argument, saying that he had a Tenth Amendment right uh, not to tell the federal government and to continue providing such services. Uh, but, of course, he, he lost in the end. Um, the, the answer is, yeah, we, we could provide emergency medical services, and I think it is appropriate to provide emergency medical services, but to you know, take steps to make sure it's not being abused, as it is in many parts of the country. But you cannot uh, offer widespread public benefits because that is a, a huge magnet. I mean, if you look at the magnets that bring people here, they are the jobs uh, and the public benefits. And among the public benefits, I would include K-12 education, the, the best K-12 education in the Western Hemisphere. So, you know, we have to recognize what these factors are that motivate people to immigrate illegally. The gentleman in the back. Uh, Professor Baker, uh, is it, uh, would you agree that it is an unspoken conspiracy between large segments of both parties to garner the support of the uh, illegal, of the immig illegal immigrants by granting them the franchise in hopes of gaining back political votes uh, sometime in the future? And uh, is, this, uh, is this expectation even uh, rational uh, or support that kind of action? If you are suggesting that members of Congress act in their self-interest, I would agree. And uh, <laughs> is that rational? I would say read Federalist 10. Of course it's rational. Thank you. Front microphone. Dean Lenikoff, um, I agree that it would be impractical to forcibly remove all 12 million illegal aliens. But what about if Congress criminalized with very long prison sentences the very act of being here illegally with the hopes that it would voluntarily drive the illegals to return to their country of origin? Well, I don't think, I mean, you, you've got 12 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. The idea that you're going to have criminal prosecutions of that many people seems quite unlikely. You don't have the prison okay. space or the, or the prosecution. So um, that, I don't think that's a realistic possibility. 
Can I respond to that, too? I'd like uh, to respond. There, um, you know, people often present this as a, a dichotomy between uh, roundups and or uh, imprisonment of illegal aliens versus a massive amnesty, and that's a false dichotomy. There is an approach in the middle that works perfectly well, and that's attrition through enforcement. Uh, illegal aliens, like all people, are rational decision makers, and they weigh the risks and the costs of, of their actions. Right now, between 300 and 400,000 people self-deport every year. It's just that the incoming flow is uh, you know, somewhere around one and a half million. And so as a result, we need to change the incentive structure by ratcheting up the level of enforcement. That doesn't mean imprisoning everyone. That doesn't mean uh, you know, having a U.S. attorney uh, launch a prosecution. It doesn't mean roundups. It just means increasing the calculation. The, uh, uh, and so that people think that there is a benefit to leaving. Let me just conclude this with an analogy. I, I think it's like a highway where everybody's speeding. If every single person is speeding on that highway, there aren't just two options of either locking up every single speeder or just ignoring the problem and saying, okay, this, there is no more speed limit. The rational solution is to put a few officers out there in patrol cars and ratchet up the level of enforcement a little bit. People then change their calculation and they bring their speed down. That's the way to solve the problem. Professor Baker. <laughs> I would like to only partially agree with Professor Kolbach. Here's the, the rule of law requires that most people voluntarily obey the law. We don't want a situation where people only obey the law because of force. Indeed, if a society has to rely totally on force, it's not a free society. What, what happens now is different from what happened before 1996 as I try to indicate. But put yourself in the, in the position of an immigration lawyer, and I am not one, but I talked to some of them. And now they have to say, well, look, you're here, you're here illegally, and, and here's what the law is. And uh, they're going to find out, the illegal, that, in fact, if they leave the country, they're going to be barred. They're never going to go back in, get back in, either under the three, the ten, or the permanent ban. So their incentive, even though the lawyer can't tell them, the lawyer has got to advise them on what the law is. But they're rational, and they're going to say, hey, you know, I'm going to just stay here and take my chances. Why self-deport? I'll never get back in. If you want them to leave voluntarily, we've got to get rid of these bars. The bars were intended to keep people out. and In fact, it's keeping people in. We need a market solution. I agree with enforcement against the businesses, but we have to understand this. Businesses don't care. They simply want workers. And if it costs them too much to employ illegal workers, they won't. But you've got to supply legal workers. So although the enforcement has to come first, people have got to be thinking very quickly about using the incentive system so that people leave voluntarily. And they do. The assumption that everybody in the world wants to live in the United States is simply false. Many of them simply exercising rational economic conduct want to come here, make a lot of money, and go back to where they came from. Not all of them, but many of them. And that's what they used to do. But now, there's, now they are staying here. If you want to reduce illegal immigration, get rid of these permanent and, and other short-term bars. In the back. Yes, this would be to any member of the panel. Uh, Professor Tucker, Joe Tucker, has suggested there may be a correspondence between the jurisprudence of the Ninth and Second Circuits 
and to the enormous caseload that they're now uh, undertaking faced with in the near future. Uh, to what extent would you agree with that, or is there another significant contributing factor? Is that a question to me? <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you'd like to answer. Uh, I, uh, I believe that um, immigration lawyers are also among those rational decision makers that we find. Um, the grant rate for asylum cases in the Fifth Circuit is 9%. In the uh, Ninth Circuit, it's 37%. If you were an immigration lawyer and you had an illegal from Mexico, would you give them up in Texas, in the Fifth Circuit, or in Arizona, in the Ninth Circuit? I think that's one of the reasons why we have to take immigration appeals and spread them out through different circuits in the country to eliminate forum shopping. Mr. Russinello. Uh, thanks, Judge. Um, I was the uh, U.S. attorney for San Francisco from 1982 to uh, 1990, and so... Uh, and soon to be again. Uh, apparently. You nominated yesterday. But in any case, um, <laughs> anyway, there, in addition to the costs that you mentioned, there are two other specific problems that, uh, that I think impacting the, the uh, legal system uh, are involved here, and, uh, and they're based on, on my experience as a prosecutor and, and specifically in San Francisco. One is voter fraud. Uh, there are significant numbers of uh, people who uh, come to the United States, don't go through naturalization, come from environments in which voter fraud is rampant, are met by uh, deputy registrars who show them registration documents that, unlike Arizona, but very much like California, only suggest that they should be citizens uh, to be eligible to vote. And that on the basis of that, because it asks them no information concerning their, their A number or other uh, verification that they're in the country legally, are able to get those people, significant numbers of them, to register. The, the state of California, just as an example, and its wisdom as a result of the investigation, made the record of all of that documentation protected by privacy laws so that it was not available to anyone to look at. Uh, so there are significant numbers of people now who probably are voting who are not uh, citizens of the United States. And the claims that somehow or another uh, this is not happening are just based on a lack of information. Uh, that's a problem that needs to be addressed, I think. The second is even more important, and that is that significant numbers of people did not take advantage of the amnesty of 1986 because they had so integrated themselves into the population by that time they couldn't suffer the embarrassment of having to admit that they weren't citizens. And those people are still in the population, and there are significant numbers of them who have been added to it. Juries throughout the country are probably made up of people who include some of those members. What's the effect of having been convicted by a jury that's not made up of citizens of the United States? How do you, in your, in your wisdom, uh, how do you suggest that any program that's either been uh, you know, offered here as part of amnesty or any uh, return to uh, you know, native country or anything else, how do you suggest that any of the remedies that have been proposed to date would address what I think are two very, very serious problems that undermine our whole system of justice? I, I can answer uh, part of that. Um, there's some evidence for what you suggest is happening. It's certainly happening in Texas. 
Um, recently, some county clerks in Texas were finding that people were coming to them saying, hey, you've got me on your uh, jury pool list, and the jury lists are drawn from the voter rolls. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an alien. I don't have to serve on this uh, jury, do I? <laughs> and and the, the clerks were tracing back, and they found out that they got on the list because when uh, they got their driver's license, they, uh, they you know, checked the box and, and uh, became voters and said, you know, they also checked the box that says U.S. citizen. I guess they didn't read it carefully. And so as a result, by uh, giving people um, access to the voter rolls, we, they, they then got onto the jury list, and then this, this problem was revealed. Uh, one solution to the problem is, is simply this. Most states, when you register to vote, you simply check a box that says, yes, I am a U.S. citizen. I think it would be a reasonable policy change to require people to provide some documentation, a copy of a birth certificate, a copy of your passport, a copy of any naturalization document you have when you register to vote. And uh, I think some states will probably be proposing statutes to that effect in the coming years. But I think that's one way to solve the problem of voter fraud, which in turn also uh, solves the secondary problem of juries having aliens on them. Um, well, there may be anecdotal evidence of this, but there, there's no substantial evidence on either of these points of voter fraud or of aliens illegally serving on juries. I think this, is, this sounds almost like a scare talk in a way, and it, it troubles me, quite frankly. Let me say something else about this. Let me say something else about in answer to what uh, Chris had, had, had earlier, earlier said. Suppose you adopt very harsh criminal penalties, and suppose the theory of uh, deportation by attrition, whatever the phrase is, works, and oh, two or three million undocumented immigrants leave the state of California. What's the impact of that on the economy and the social fabric of California? Most, uh, many undocumented immigrants live in mixed families. They have permanent resident alien spouses and kids and citizen kids. They are full-fledged members of their community in terms of attending churches, in terms of other social organizations, in terms of working and paying taxes, in terms of owning houses. What do you think the impact on the economy of California would be? So people who propose either that we have mass roundups or very harsh uh, policies that send people home have to think about the impact on this country and the way these people are living their lives. That's what suggests, it seems to me, a reasonable legalization program that says to people who haven't committed crimes other, uh, or except for the illegal entry, who have not committed crimes, who've paid their taxes, who've worked for a long period of time in the United States, are, are important and necessary uh, part of our society and should be recognized as such, rather than penalized and subject to very harsh criminal penalties. Professor Baker. I think that Dean Landerkoff is right to say about our lack of evidence. And it, again, I come back to the purpose of enforcement ought to be for us to know what the economic impact will be. And I think you're right that there's going to be a huge economic impact. And the American people can choose. Either they want to accept that economic impact or maybe they want to modify it. You know, for those of us who are getting a little bit older, I, I start to worry about are there going to be enough nurses to take care of the boomers as we retire? And it may be when they realize that uh, you can't afford any kind of health care because we haven't got any nurses, then all of a sudden people may be interested in opening up the quota for Philippine nurses or Indian nurses or whatever. There's no reason why we can't have a more rational allocation and increase in the number of legal uh, immigrants. But again, you've got to force Congress to do this, and they're not going to do it. 
until people understand what it is they want and what they don't want. And they won't know what they want and what they don't want until they really understand the costs and benefits to the economy, which is a big part of the equation. The last question uh, in the back. Hi, I'm Monique Miles from Regent University School of Law. And given that this um, illegal immigration is costing our nation from 65 million to 85 million um, a year, this seems like a national security issue. Are you aware of any international efforts of U.S. government working with other governments to try and track down the smugglers? Because that seems like that would be less costly than having to build up a wall to, um, you know, to, to defend our country. Professor Baker? Well, in an example of the interconnected world, we got rid of some of the El Salvadoran refugees that went to Los Angeles after the uh, period of war in Central America. They've gone back to Honduras, and uh, they have become Honduras, not El Salvador. They've become a major destabilizing force in Latin America, in Central America. So what you're getting down there are combinations not only of terrorists, and that's probably not the biggest problem, but gangs and drug running and everything else. Uh, this is a very interconnected problem, and yes, it relates to terrorism, but it's like anything else. You squeeze on one side of this problem, and you think you solve it here, but you create another problem there. I'm not saying it's not a reason to try to solve the problem, but I come back to the first point. There is no simple fix on this. Uh, Professor, Kovac, Professor Newman. Go ahead. Um, I, I'm a scholar. Without a microphone? I'm a scholar, and I'm afraid I want to say I don't have any solutions to the problems that we're talking about. Um, Professor Kobach has said he has solutions to a number of problems, uh, and I just want to raise the question, what do we mean when we say we have solutions to the problems? If there was some magic means of enforcement that we could adopt that could get rid of all illegal immigration, that would be a solution to the problem of illegal immigration. But if these methods are only methods that are going to be partial solutions, that are going to, get, that are going to lower the rate, that are going to get rid of 50% uh, or 60% or 70% uh, of the illegal immigrants, then we still need solutions for what we're going to do with regard to the people who we haven't been able to get rid of. One of the questions was about the public health consequence. What are the epidemic... What are the epidemiological consequences of having people who are out of the healthcare system? Uh, there are also law enforcement consequences. Uh, when the Proposition 187 was being voted on in the mid-90s in California, the Sheriff's Department of Los Angeles County came forward and said, look, we don't want all these teenagers thrown out of the school and being on the streets. It is more of a law enforcement problem for us to have illegal alien children thrown out of the schools than it is to have them uh, in the schools. Uh, and again, I'm saying I, I don't have a solution, but I think it's important for us to focus on how many different parts of the problems we need to have solutions for before we know that we have a solution. The last comment, 
Professor Kobach, and then we're going to have to vacate the room for Mr. Yeah, yeah the, the question being about uh, international cooperation, we do see some cooperation. Obviously, Mexico, you know, being our southern neighbor, is, is where a lot of these uh, trafficking networks flow through. We do have some cooperation uh, with Mexico on uh, certain drug smuggling uh, networks, but that cooperation is, is less than what it could be. And we have certainly uh, a real need for more cooperation with generally slowing the immigration, illegal immigration flow from Mexico. And one of the reasons is an obvious one, and that's remittances. Every year there's somewhere, well, recent years, it's been up to $26 billion a year in payments sent back usually to family members uh, in Mexico. That's Mexico's, depending on how they're doing in oil that year, uh, either their first or second source of foreign capital. And so it's, it's not hard to see why sometimes the cooperation isn't what we would like it to be. As far as solutions go, I don't claim to have all the solutions. I just think I, ha I have a few ideas that you know, ought to be tried, and one idea that certainly ought to be tried is attrition through enforcement in a systematic way. Uh, Dean Lanikoff said, well, what, what would be the consequences economically? I'll tell you what the consequences would be. Wages would go up. That's what happens when some of the labor pool goes away. And, and sure, the price of some products at the grocery store and the price of having uh, a new roof on your house would probably also go up. But the fiscal cost that all of us taxpayers are bearing would go down, and I think that's a reasonable trade-off. Thank you, members of the panel, and we are adjourned. Thank you, Judge. It was an honor to I come up here. Can we have lunch? Sure. Okay. Good. Thank you. Thank you.